morning. We want to welcome everyone as we gather this morning. Good morning. We want to welcome those who have come in person. We want to thank those who are tuning in line for us today. You know, uh, recognize that, uh, you know, you could be doing any number of things this morning, but you've chosen to spend this time with us and, and worshiping God and, and seeking Him and uh, and uh, uh, turning to His Word. And so we want to thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, as you look at your announcements this week, it's pretty much uh, a typical week. We do have uh, the Men's Great Banquet Weekend is finishing today, so we want to keep that in our prayers. And the Women's Great Banquet Weekend is starting on Thursday, so we want to keep that in our prayers, that God just reveal himself and minister to people uh, in, a, in a special way. Uh, the Hell Meeting did get changed this month because of the Great Banquet Weekend, so, uh, so that's noted in your bulletin as well. Uh, also, you know... This is what it's like to get old. I've had this flyer on my pulpit for like three weeks now, I think. And I keep thinking that I'm going to announce it for you. And, uh, and it's not in my bulletin, right? It's just on my, bullet, uh, my pulpit. So there is a women's conference coming up at Crossroads United Methodist Church on Friday, April 21st. It's like a Friday night, Saturday morning kind of thing. Uh, there's some flyers on the bulletin board there. There's several pinned up there. So if you're interested in it, just grab one, um, and it's got some information on it. So it's a women's conference at uh, Crossroads United Methodist in Washington on the 20. Oh, actually, maybe it's just a, it might just be Friday night. Uh, one night, three hours, if I read the flyer. There you go. So with that, let's, uh, let's pray and go to the Lord and worship. So loving Father, we just uh, we give you praise as we gather here today. Uh, you are worthy of all honor and power and glory, and we just uh, we just bow before you, and we pray that you would minister to our hearts as we come to minister to you in worship. And Father, we give you uh, thanks for the things that you're doing. Uh, we know that our, our world is in a lot of chaos and darkness, uh, but yet we we see that you are moving, and we just uh, we give you praise for for the things that you are doing for the lives that you're touching, and we just uh, we pray that you would continue to just open eyes and, and hearts to, to who you are uh, in our nation and our world, and especially uh, we just lift up the great banquet weekend, uh, this weekend and next weekend, that you would just reveal yourself uh, and meet people where they are and just uh, draw them closer to who you are. And so, Father, we just uh, we praise you. Uh, we do just uh, invite you to come and to fill this place. Uh, we ask for your anointing and for your spirit to come as we come in the name of Jesus, who's taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We are here to lift up praises to our God. I'm going to start us off in Isaiah 43, as titled, The Savior of Israel. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. 
For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. You are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid for I am with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west. I will say to the north and south, bring my sons and daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. Bring all who claim me as their God for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. We have a God who loves us, who is willing to say, I love you and I want you to be saved. Would you please stand and join me in, uh, as we open with amen because he lives. Oh, mm -hmm. 
the people who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Gather the nations together, assemble the peoples of the world. Which of their idols has foretold such things? Which can predict what will happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. We continue on with Jesus, you alone.
first I predicted your rescue, then I saved you and proclaimed it to the world. No foreign God has ever done this. You are witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. And that is a truth that we will build our lives on. We continue on.
seated. Okay, this morning's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnawing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. The Lord's blessing be on the reading and Pastor Dan's message. Uh, Amanda and I, we, uh, we enjoy a good movie, and so when a good movie comes out, you know, there's a decision we have to make, and that decision is, is it worth going to the theater to see it, right? Because you can go to the theater and see it, and I, actually, it's been a long time since we've been to the theater. It's probably, what, $9 a ticket, eight fifty a ticket, something like that, right? So you can go to the, to the movie and see it, and see it on the big screen, and have the big theatrical experience, or do we wait and wait? And wait, and wait, and oh yeah, was there a movie we were going to see? And wait, right? Now, I don't think it takes as long as it used to for a movie to be released that, that it used to be, right? But the difference is between, like, say, $18 to $5.99 to $3.99 or free, depending on how long you're willing to wait. And honestly, most of the time we wait. We don't really go to the theater too often. Uh, but sometimes we decide it's worth going to the big screen. You know, maybe it's one of those movies where we're like, you know, that's just going to be so much better on the big screen and the sound and all that. Or, or perhaps it's sometimes it's like, you know, that's a good Christian movie and we want to give support to it and we want to just show our support by going to the theater to see it. Uh, you know, there, there are many things in life that are objective, like the price of that ticket, right? That price of that ticket is objective. They're not changing the price because they say, you know what, how about I give you... $2 for entry. You know, I remember back in high school, we went to Chillicothe and it was $1.50. $1.50 to go to the theater. We're so old. <laughs> Happy birthday, by the way. <laughs> right? There's some things in life that are objective, like the price of that ticket. doesn't matter what you 
think, doesn't matter how you feel about it, the facts are the facts, and that's simply how it is. Such as when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Doesn't matter how you feel about it, doesn't matter what you think about it. Jesus either died and rose again, or he didn't. That's an objective fact, right? There are things in life that are objective. Doesn't matter how you feel about it or what you think about it. It's just true. Now, there are other things in life that are subjective, such as what you're willing to pay for a ticket to see a movie. That would be subjective, right? What's worth to one is not maybe something worth to another. You know, am I going to go to the theater? Is it worth the price or am I just going to wait? Another subjective truth would be, and I, I, I'm going to cause division in the house, right? Chocolate is better than vanilla. What? It's just true, isn't it, right? It's just tr now, see, that's a subjective truth, right? It's a pres uh, pre preference, right? You know, uh, you know I'll, I'll, uh, death by chocolate sounds like heaven to me, right? You know, so uh, there are things in life that are objective. There are things in life that are subjective. I, d I don't recall which year it was, but we had a, an antiques dealer that actually came out and visited us at uh, Colfax and Aerosmith when I served there. And at the time, we were talking about maybe merging the churches and seeing what value was. And so we had an antiques dealer come out just to give us an idea of what things were worth and stuff. And uh, I remember her response really had two parts to it. One part was, this is what it's worth. And the other part was, the trick is, who's going to pay that for it? Right? Here's what it's worth, but who's going to pay that for it? Because when you think about the value or worth of something to you, it's measured by what you're willing to give in exchange for it. Right? Some people are willing to give more in exchange for, say, a name brand than somebody else would be. Value or worth is measured by what you're willing to give in exchange. Now, if you think about it for a moment, why did you come to church today? Because let's face it, there are many who didn't come to church, or there's many who aren't listening online. And, you know, the truth is, you could have slept in. Did I hear that? Did you guys hear that? Yes, I... But you still made it, didn't you? But you could have slept in, right? You could be sitting at your table in your PJs. You could be at home watching sports. You could be working out. What? Or, as is more likely for many, dining out, right? You got to have that Sunday morning brunch. You could be doing any number of different things on Sunday morning. But why did you come? You came because you value worshiping God. That has value to you. You came because you value learning from his word. You value fellowshipping with other Christians. And for you, you said, this is worth giving in exchange some of my time, some of my effort, uh, some of my dollars, right? Gas in the tank. It takes gas to get here. Uh, you could be doing something else, but you said, this has value. This has value. And so I'm willing to give some things in exchange for it. You know, what something is worth to us, the value we assign to it is, a, is reflected in what we're willing to give in exchange, whether it's time, whether it's talent, whether it's treasure. Now, as we, uh, uh, this is our third week dealing with some parables from Matthew 13. 
And in the parables that we're going to talk about today, uh, Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of heaven, like all the parables have been doing in this chapter. And uh, just a, a real quick aerial survey and way of review, uh, because not everybody's been here for every week, uh, right? We, we started with the parable of the sower, which revealed that people will respond differently to the word of God, right? There's, uh, there must be a receptive heart for it to take root rather than the hard soil or the rocky soil or the thorny soil. And in the parable of the sower, we saw where the word of God takes root, there will be fruit, right? We had the fine, you like that? Yeah. Wasn't that cool? <laughs> That'll preach, won't it? <laughs> but where the word of God takes root, there's going to be fruit. Then we looked at the parable of the weeds, revealed that those in whom the word takes root, those who had ears to hear, if you remember uh, really a theme through these parables or have an ear to hear, those who had ears to hear, they will become sons and daughters of the kingdom. However, what we also learned in that parable is that the kingdom didn't come quite as expected because the Jews expected this cataclysmic coming of the kingdom where evil and good would be separated, right? And the kingdom would come and it would be all done and, and we would be in the righteousness of the Messiah and under his reign, right? What Jesus told us in that parable is... Uh, it's going to grow gradually over stages. And in the meantime, there's going to be good and there's going to be evil. They're going to be growing together. They're going to be existing together, right? This is also illustrated through the mustard seed and the leaven until the harvest at the end of the age when the good and the evil will be separated. So as we're kind of living in this time of the meantime, right? Remember those dreaded PE classes? How many of you liked PE back in school? right? Remember those PE classes and you'd have, well, you get to be the captain and you get to be the captain and, and you start picking your teams, right? Well, you can think about it this way as you think about the wheat and the weeds. There are two teams. There's team Jesus and there's team devil. You're playing on the same court. You're on the same field. There's two teams. Victory is assured in the long game if you're on team Jesus. But the question is, what about the short game? Have you ever watched a sporting event? You notice that there's like uh, uh, times where one team gets hot and the other team's not, and you get these little waves, and it's all of a sudden one seems to be winning, and then the momentum changes and momentum shifts, right? Victory is assured in the long game, but what about the short game? Say like, what about my lifetime? You know, because, you know, it's, it's been a while since Jesus came the first time, and we're still looking for him to come to say, now what about the short game, like my lifetime? You know, if the righteous and the evil are growing together, then shouldn't I expect that there's going to be adversity? Shouldn't I expect there's going to be opposition? Maybe persecution? Can't I expect that there's going to be competition for my heart, for my values, for my priorities? Can't I expect there's going to be challenges and, and hardships after growing together? Remember the seed on the rocky soil was the person who threw in the towel when tribulation came because of the word. The thorny soil was the one in whom the word was choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. And one of the questions that we have to be asking ourselves, hey, if the wheat and the weeds are, are growing together, and sometimes it's a lot easier to be like the weeds than it is the wheat, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, is it worth it? Is it worth going that movie cinema and paying that ticket, right? Is it worth it? Value is measured by what we're willing to give in exchange. Is it worth it? Because it's much easier to live for today's pleasures than for tomorrow's promises. 
And the question that we have to wrestle with is, are tomorrow's promises worth the cost of some of today's pleasures? Is it worth following Jesus when there's a cost to following Jesus? Now that question is going to bring us into the final four parables in this chapter, the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price, uh, the net and the new and the old treasures. And you might think these parables are in a sense to encourage, to reassure, to challenge the disciples. The disciples who have done what? Given up everything to follow Jesus. Who have made sacrifice to follow Jesus. The disciples who will eventually be called to give up their lives and following Jesus. For a kingdom that they cannot yet fully see. For a kingdom that is still about tomorrow's promises. Is it worth it? You know, when you think about salvation, salvation is free. But following Jesus, well, following Jesus comes with a cost, doesn't it? You might remember a rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and Jesus says to him, uh, sell all and come and follow me. That sounds like a cost. You might remember to some, he said, you know, if, if, uh, if you uh, don't hate father and mother and brother and sister, then you're not worthy to come and follow me. That sounds like a cost. There was a man who said, well, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said, well, let the dead bury their own dead. That sounds like a cost. Now, there's more context to each of those passages. And so if any of those sound confusing to you, then uh, feel free to ask questions later, right? I, I'm on a time limit today because I know you, you give value for coming here, but I know there's, an, there's only so much time you're willing to exchange to come here too, right? So each of those have a context, but all of those are pointing out the fact that salvation is free, but following Jesus, sometimes there's a cost. And you have to think for many in Jesus' day, for them to follow Jesus, it meant being disowned by their parents. It meant by having people in their community turn their back on them. Jesus demanded much of those who followed him along with giving them the promise that you will be persecuted for me. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now that raises the critical question, doesn't it? And that question is, is it, is he worth it? Well, Jesus goes on in Luke 9 to say, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of it, the holy angels. Sounds to me like Jesus is saying, it's worth it. It's worth it. Now, in transparency, as we dive into these parables, uh, you remember in the parable of the sower, Jesus was, was kind. He gives us an explanation. And the parable of the wheat and the, the weeds, Jesus was kind. He gives us an explanation. And the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl, Jesus didn't give us an explanation. You know what that means? That means scholars differ. It means scholars differ, and, and I should say it means good scholars differ. Bible-believing scholars differ on these parables, uh, and I'm going to give you both perspectives today, and I'm going to give you the perspective that I hold and, and why I hold it, because uh, Jesus doesn't give us the interpretation of the hidden treasure and the pearl, and so there's two different uh, uh, interpretations, primary interpretations, verses 44 and 45. 
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, one perspective uh, views the treasure and the pearl primarily as the people of God. And so the, the idea here is the kingdom is to degree hidden, right? The wheat and the weeds are growing together. It's, it's growing gradually over time. So the kingdom is to degree hidden. Didn't come cataclysm. I should use words I can say. It didn't come cataclysmically as expected. But it is a fancy word, isn't it? Now, in this interpretation, Jesus is the one who sells everything to purchase it. So this interpretation sees Jesus as the merchant, the pearl as the church, and the cross as the price is paid for her. And this uh, uh, view is espoused by scholars like Lockyer and, and others uh, who basically point out that the parable is not a picture of the sinner seeking Christ, but of Christ seeking his church. Right, so uh, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life for, uh, ransom for many, uh, I came to seek and save the lost. You know, the physician came for the sick. Uh, so that's kind of the argument behind this interpretation of the parables. And, and it's biblically sound, right? We, we know it's biblically sound. Jesus did come to seek and save the lost. Uh, he gave up the glories of heaven to be born as a babe in a manger and ultimately to die on the cross for our salvation. Now, here's a thought I want you to think about. If value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for it or give in exchange for it, what does that say about your value to the king? Jesus voluntarily left the right side of the father, gave up his throne in heaven in exchange for a manger and a stable, where his first years were spent fleeing for his life. The one who created the heavens and the stars and the sun and the moon and all that is grew up in poverty. At times with no place to lay his head. He would experience hunger and thirst and tiredness and loneliness and temptation and rejection and betrayal only to be denied and crucified by those he came to save. If value is determined by what somebody is willing to pay for it, think of your value to the king who gave his life for you. As Peter puts it, you have been bought not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19. And if you kind of go with this interpretation, uh, you can build out some of the uh, uh, analogy with the pearls, right? A pearl is a product of a living organism. It's produced as a result of an injury, formed slowly and gradually out of the suffering to produce an object of beauty and value. So the church, the object of his desire, is birthed out of his suffering and death to become something of great value. Uh, as Paul says, uh, yet, even though Christ was rich, for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 3, or 8, 9. I'm sorry, so, so that's kind of the argument that goes with that particular interpretation of the parables. Now, the difficulty is not in whether these points are true. The question is, is that what Jesus is intending to teach through these particular parables? You know, it's fun to read through commentators who, you know, argue points with one another, right? So the first interpretation argues against the other explanation 
by breaking down the analogy, right? So we have this analogy, kingdoms like uh, a treasure hidden in a field, and we have the merchant seeking the pearls, right? And so uh, this interpretation will argue against the other explanation by taking the analogy and breaking it down into its finer details, right? Such as the fact that we don't purchase Christ, but Christ purchases us. I don't think any of us would argue that point, would we? Uh, we had nothing to offer. We had nothing to bring. We don't purchase Christ. Christ purchases us. The sinner has nothing to offer for their salvation. It's Jesus who comes to seek and save the lost, right? So that's kind of the argument that they would take is this is Christ purchasing the church because we don't purchase our salvation. However, when you speak metaphorically, you can't take every detail and press it to an exact parallel, right? So every analogy will break down at some point. So for instance, when Jesus refers to Herod as a fox in Luke 13, 32, I don't believe Jesus is saying that he had pointy ears and a tail and a lot of fuzzy hair. Maybe he did, I don't know, right? I don't think that's the point Jesus is making by calling Herod a fox. He doesn't mean that we take that analogy and find something to fit with every detail of a fox that correlates with Herod. Likewise, when Jesus says of himself that I am the door in John 10, 9, I don't think that means Jesus is saying, hey, I have hinges, I have a handle, I have a deadbolt, right? I don't think he means, as we look at the analogy, to find a, an exact parallel to every single detail. Now, what's interesting to me is you can look at the ones who argue for that interpretation. They'll take some of these details and they'll say, well, so that's why it's not this other explanation. But this is the fun part of what, you know, Dan can sometimes argue two sides. And I can't argue two sides, right? Because I could do the exact same. I could take the other explanation. I could look at other parts of the analogy and say, you know, well, your idea doesn't fit with these parts of the analogy, right? So if you're going to take if you're going to take the parable and break it down into all these fine details instead of looking at the big picture, uh, we can play that game on the other side of the fence as well. So in the first parable, I'm getting to the point here, right? In the first parable, <laughs> the man did not at first know that the treasure was there, right? It's hidden in the field. And he stumbles across it accidentally, and so he covers it up. He buys the field, thereby allowing him to buy the field. He gets more than what he pays for it. Right? Because I'm giving you the value of the price of the land because I know there's treasure. But you know what you don't know that's there? That treasure in the land. So I'm going to get more than what I paid for it. So are we to say that when that Jesus didn't know the treasure was there, that he stumbles across this hidden treasure in the field, and once he discovers it, he pays for it with his life, and he gets more than what he paid for? Somehow, I don't think that's quite right either. When you think about a parable, the challenge is, what's the lesson being taught without going beyond the lesson that's being taught? Sometimes you could lose the message if you get too particular with all of the, of the details, right? Now, now, in the sower and the wheat and the tares, he gives us details for each of the points, right? But generally speaking, with the parable, you're looking at what's the big picture being conveyed, so now look at verse 51, because I, I, I find this, for me, verse 51 helps me understand the parables as well as the context of the chapter. So in verse 51, Jesus says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. I heard somebody say no, and I like that answer, right? I, I, because Jesus says, do you, now remember, uh, they've already pulled Jesus aside and said, hey, can you tell us what this means, right? 
And they do that more than once throughout the right? Do you understand these things? And they say, yes. Now, it's clear that they do not understand everything, right? Because if I just flip over a couple pages here, which is, you know, a couple chapters, Jesus is going to start teaching them, hey, the Son of Man must suffer and die, right? This is going to be Jesus is laying down his life to purchase the church. The Son of Man must suffer and die. And what does Peter do? May it never be. So when they say they understand everything, uh, well, they don't understand everything. Now, to say they don't understand everything is not to say that they understood nothing. So here's the question. What is it that they understood? What is it that they understood? Is, are these parables a picture of Jesus and his relationship to the world, and consequently his church, or is it a picture of the value of the kingdom for the disciples? Is Jesus the purchaser who buys the field as a picture of salvation, or is the treasure worth whatever following him might worldly cost us as a picture of discipleship? It can be, it has been, and it is argued both ways. And honestly, both ways can make a biblical argument. Jesus did purchase the church. And Jesus is worth whatever worldly cost to follow. So if you don't hear anything else, take those two points home. Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom of heaven. He's been teaching on people's response to it. He's been teaching on the current presence of evil and the reality of coming judgment, despite how things might appear. Now, I do think it's going to be a stretch at this point to say that the disciples understand the necessity of the suffering and death of Jesus, right? We're going to see that in a few chapters. Jesus has to correct the disciples on more than one occasion, right? I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that they understand the necessity of the suffering and death of Jesus. But that's not to say that they could not understand the importance of the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming. The kingdom that Jesus has been casting out demons as a demonstration that this kingdom has now come upon them in Matthew 12, 28, just before we get into the parables pertaining to the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Anybody think he might be talking about the kingdom of heaven? So I think it's more likely than seeing the deeper meaning of the parable, figuring out, hey, you know what? A pearl has all these neat dynamics that it's, uh, you know, out of suffering. We get this out. I think it's more likely that when the disciples say, hey, yeah, we understand these things, that they're not seeing the picture of Jesus dying to purchase the church as much as they are seeing the worth and the value of the kingdom and the king that they're following. The kingdom, like a hidden treasure or a priceless pearl, is incomparable in value and worth, whatever worldly cost. Like the hidden treasure or the merchant willing to sell all for this one pearl of great value. Now, the point would not be about purchasing a place in the kingdom. That misses the point of the parable. But it's about entering the kingdom. Entering the kingdom is worth whatever it cost us. Tomorrow's promises are worth sacrificing some of today's pleasures. Now, you might take note that at this point, as Jesus is teaching the parables, he's no longer talking to the crowds. He's talking privately to the disciples. We see that from verse 36. So he's talking privately to his disciples who need encouragement as they've not only left homes, they've left families, they've left businesses, 
And now they're also encountering opposition from the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders that they once followed. They need to be reminded that, hey, this is worth it. This is worth it. The cost you've paid to follow me, it's going to be worth it in the end. So in this view, Jesus is teaching the incomparable worth of the kingdom. It's like this treasure hidden in the field, a pearl worth giving everything we have for. Uh, Carson writes that the imagery reflects the reality of a time when people buried treasures in their fields. Uh, you know, uh, they couldn't just go to the bank and put it in the bank. Right? So it was common for them to bury it in the field. But you know what might happen? The person who buried it in the field might die. And the next person to have that field might not even know it's there. This is true, historically, right? And he, he points out, so this is an image that they're very uh, familiar with, the idea of buried treasures in their fields. But Carson also goes on to say, uh, though to find one was said to happen once in a thousand lifetimes. And thus the extravagance of the parable dramatizes the supreme importance of the kingdom. Now notice in the first parable, the treasure is found and then it's covered up. Now, first thing we should say, this is not about the morality or ethics of carrying up the treasure, you know, and then going and buying the field, right? Remember, we're not going to, parables weren't meant to be broken down in all their individual parts, unless Jesus does it for us. But people buried their treasure. Now, if they died, the current owner of the field might not even know the treasure's there. You know what the rabbinic law was at the time? The rabbinic law was that if you found this treasure and you lifted it out, then it belonged to whoever owned the field. If you left it there, right? So if you didn't lift it out, then it's still a hidden treasure. So what's the man in the parable do? He doesn't lift it out. You know, I read some people say, well, he moved it somewhere else and hid it, like he was hiding it from the owner of the field. It doesn't say that. He finds the treasure and he covers it back up. He doesn't lift it out of the field. He covers it up and he says, hey, you know what, Jason? I'd like to buy some land from you. Now, if Jason knew that the treasure was there, then Jason is not going to sell that land to him, right? So we should understand that the owner of the field doesn't realize it, right? It's this hidden treasure. He's covered it up. And so the point that Jesus is teaching the disciples is, hey, you know, this kingdom has come secretly. And you've heard of the kingdom. You're seeing the kingdom. And it's like this hidden treasure. Now, notice the joy of finding it, but also the worth of giving everything for it. This is encouragement to the disciples, this kingdom that you're following, that you're hearing me proclaim. This is worth whatever it costs. As Paul points out, the point of Jesus' parable is a simple one. This man found something that was so valuable that he's willing to give up everything he had for it. He recognizes the value of the treasure, the kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming, and so he acts accordingly. He gives up everything, and he receives more than he gives up. Now, Matthew 19, 27 through 29, Peter says to Jesus, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Now, what is Peter doing there? Peter is saying, you know what? Are tomorrow's promises really worth leaving some of today's pleasures? We've left everything. What then will we have? Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake. That sounds like giving up a lot, doesn't it? 
will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Uh, that's Jesus' yes. It's worth it. It's worth it. Now, typically, the hidden treasure and the pearl are taken together. The treasure of the field is stumbled upon by accident. The pearl, however, is discovered through deliberate search. So the parables are, are taken together, twin parables, a lot of similarity, but there are some distinct differences. Now, Carson writes, and I quote, although he, uh, uh, the merchant is an expert in pearls, the single find so far surpasses any other pearl the merchant has ever seen that he considers it a fair exchange for everything else that he owns. Thus, Jesus is not as interested in religious efforts or in affirming that one can buy the kingdom, right? That's not the point he's trying to teach in the parable. He's not interested in religious efforts or, or that one can buy the kingdom. On the contrary, he is saying that the person whose life has been bound up with the pearls, which he describes as the entire religious heritage of the Jews, will, on comprehending the true value of the kingdom as Jesus presents it, gladly exchange all else to follow him. Salvation is free. The following Jesus could cost you everything. These parables are a call to decision, as Jesus has been teaching on the kingdom, illustrating that the kingdom is worth whatever worldly cost it comes. Right Now, uh, I've shared the quote before, Jim Elliott. Many of you are familiar with Jim Elliott, uh, or perhaps you are, perhaps you're not. He was a missionary who was died, who was killed, he, who was died, who was killed, right, uh, uh, by the tribe he went to, to witness to. And Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that powerful? So easy to live for today's pleasures, but it's tomorrow's promises that really count. Because we can't keep today's tre uh, treasures with us, can we? We can't take it with us when we go. Now, Bloomberg observes the difference between the merchant looking for the good buy and the man who stumbles upon the treasure. He says, Jesus may therefore be calling both the individual who is diligently searching for spiritual riches, as well as the person who is entirely apathetic toward God, to give up whatever stands between them and the kingdom. To give up whatever stands between them and the kingdom. You might ask the question of why. Verses 47 through 50 continue. Uh, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore. It sat down and sorted the good uh, into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is very similar to the wheat and the weeds that we talked about last week. Currently, the future might seem unsure because the evil and righteous are existing together, right? So we had the wheat and the weeds, uh, I think that was last week, last week, right? You know, I've, I've slept since then, right? Uh, here, it's a picture of all the fish that are swimming together. Uh, so it may not be today because now the kingdom's not separating the good and the evil, and we talked about that last week. But one day, the evil and the righteous will be divided in the judgment to come. Go all the way back to the parable of the sower. Many seeds are going to fall on the hard path, on the rocky and on the thorny soil. But he's saying there's great joy for those of faith who know what they have and realize the kingdom is worth whatever cost. 
Now notice in the net, they gather fish of every kind. Now the Greek word that's translated kind is more commonly translated as race or tribe, according to Bloomberg. It's a picture of the nations, right? So it's a picture of this net, and it's a picture of all the nations. Now, isn't it interesting that we can have all these nations of the world, but when it comes down to it, they're divided in how many categories? Two. Good and the bad. You're either with me or you're against me. Jesus said just a couple chapters back, right? You're either with Christ or you're not. He says the kingdom is worth whatever cost. Verses 51 and 52, he says, have you understood all these things? And the disciples said to him, yes. Now, is it more likely at this point that they're understanding that Jesus is going to suffer and die and out of that the, birth, the church is going to be birthed? Or is it more likely that they're understanding this kingdom is worth whatever it costs me worldly? That's why I take the stance where I'm at, right? And they said, yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe, isn't that interesting? You know, how often do we see the scribes and the Pharisees in a negative light? But Jesus here says, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So he's saying, hey, you've not only been instructed in the kingdom or about the kingdom, but you've become disciples of the kingdom, trained for the kingdom. And in naming them scribes, he is commissioning them to interpret the mystery and the message of the kingdom. Hey, I've been sharing all this stuff with you about the kingdom. Now it's your turn. That's what he's telling them. Now it's your turn. As the master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is new and old. You know, we have value in the Old Testament scriptures, but now we also have the New Testament revelation. The Old Testament finding its fulfillment in Jesus. Jesus explaining to them what was mysteries before. And so he's saying, now, having been taught, it's time for you to share what you've learned. Now, as you think about these parables, <clears throat> as appealing as our value to the king is, and the extent to which Jesus went to purchase our redemption, which is a, a, an accurate biblical view, right? I'm not debating the truth of that. It's an accurate biblical view. It seems to me that these parables are teaching the value of being sons and daughters of the kingdom which is worth anything it costs for us in following the king. Now, with that said, the difficulty is not in the understanding, is it? It's much easier to live for today's pleasures than for tomorrow's promises. The difficulty is not in the understanding, is it? All of us know that he who dies with the most toys still dies. All of us know that we can't take the treasures of this world with us. We know that deep down, right? But isn't it so much easier to live for those comforts today than for the promises of tomorrow? The difficulty is not in the understanding, but in the application. Because today's pleasures are so easy to live for. Tomorrow's promises seem so far away, don't they? But that doesn't mean that tomorrow's promises are not immeasurably, immeasurably superior to any of today's pleasures. So let him who has ears hear and persevere in their decision to follow Jesus, knowing that it will be worth it in the end. Amen. In your bulletin, you have a communication card, and I invite you to uh, think about how God might be speaking uh, to you this morning. And then we invite you to offer that up as part of your worship uh, uh, as you think about how you're going to respond. Uh, as you respond to let him who has ears hear. Right? And for the Jews, 
for the Jews, hearing meant obeying. You know, it was more than just hearing the words, it was also about obeying. Now, as we come to uh, communion and stewardship, uh, while I think the incomparable worth of being a part of the kingdom that's worth any worldly cost is most likely what Jesus is teaching in these parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great value, it's the other viewpoint that we're reminded of as we come to this table, isn't it? Because as we come to this table, we're reminded not of the value of the kingdom to us as much as the value that we have to the king who laid aside all the glories of heaven to be born in humility, to grow up in poverty, to experience suffering and death, to purchase your salvation. You've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You are the treasure that he created and then died to redeem, bought and paid for through his precious blood. He first gave everything for you, and it's worth you now giving everything to follow him. So we start with what he has done by coming to the table, and then we respond to what he has done with our next steps, whatever those next steps might be. So I want to remind you that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he'd given thanks, he broke it. Then he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you'll proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let us pray. O gracious and loving Father, as we come to this table, we do recognize that we had nothing upon which to purchase our way into the kingdom or our salvation, but rather that it was Christ who came to seek and to save us, who purchased our salvation through none other than his own blood and his own sacrifice. And yet we're also reminded as we come, O Lord, that because of who he is and all of what he's done for us, that being a part of your kingdom is certainly worth any worldly cost, that it's free to come, but that following you might come with a cost. We just pray that we would be willing to, to make that cost, to truly be disciples, that we would have ears to hear and to follow, that we would be the good soil upon which your seed can take root, that we would not be the thorny soil they get so distracted by the cares of the world or the rocky soil that gives up because it costs too much or the hard soil that just is one ear, in one ear and out the next. But Lord, may your, may your word take root in our hearts that we might bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I was just thinking, I think Rick usually recruits people and he's not here today. As you come, uh, recognize your value to the king and maybe take some time to reflect on what is his value to you. We invite you to come.
So growing up in Washburn, there is, um, there is a house as you leave town that used to be all by itself um, on the east side of town. And I, I don't know where those folks went to church. I just remember hearing that they lived through the Great Depression. And because of that, I know a lot of folks who lived through the Great Depression buried money in their yards because they didn't trust the banks because the banks weren't trustworthy at the time and perhaps yet today. But <laughs> um, but someone had purchased their house after they had both passed away and found some of this money buried in canning jars in the yard. And they, they found themselves wondering how much is in the yard and, and where is it? But anyway, so that's that. That, that got my wheels a turn in. But, but then my grandpa always used to tell us a story of his brother who was a realtor and he was selling a house once, and he had two brothers come to him, older gentlemen, they lived together, grew up, um, lived through the Great Depression, and they came to purchase the house, and they brought with them one of the old milk cans, and when they went to purchase it, they, they opened up that milk can, and it was full of cash that they planned on using to purchase this house, and they pulled it all out, counted it, and it wasn't um, quite the amount that they were needing. And the one brother looks together, he goes, goodness gracious, Jerry, we brought the wrong can. <laughs> and my, my grandpa always stopped there and he'd look at us, he goes, can you believe that they had another can somewhere with that much money in it? But the point of the whole thing is, you know, what, what has it cost us? Have we surrendered all? Do we have another milk can full of gifts and talents somewhere else that we are keeping and holding on for ourselves? Have we surrendered everything to him so that he can use it? Have we sought the spirit in prayer asking, am I holding something back? Because sometimes it's not always apparent to us when we're latching on to that control. It feels natural, right? Because we're operating in the flesh. Um, and I, I think that it's just so difficult for many of us to fully trust God with everything because we're not used to trusting people like that, right? So we just need to be in prayer and, you know, in our times with God, ask him, is there anything else that I need to surrender to you? Is there another milk can lying around somewhere that I need to give up? So we come together knowing that and, and I was looking up um, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. We know that he has a trustworthy name, that he is worth giving all, surrendering all. So would you please stand? We're going to close today with what a beautiful name, because it is beautiful. It is trustworthy. It is powerful.
Lord. <laughs> you are the good seed planted in the field of the world, intended to bring life to others through the message of God's love that he's given to you. You know, you think about the parables throughout, you know, the, the word started as the word of God, and then the word was the sons of the kingdom. Remember the transition from one parable to the next? Go forth to share the treasure that's been entrusted to you as you recognize the value and the worth of the kingdom, of the king, and as you live accordingly in order to make a kingdom difference as you live for him. Amen.